All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come tonight and fellowship with each other and study the Word and study um, the spiritual uh, activity that's going on in the world as everything is simply ramping up to a different level. So um, we ask that you would uh, uh, f- uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, that he would illuminate us to the Scriptures and to the truth that we're, we're, we're dealing with uh, so we can be more effective and protect ourselves and our families, Father. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm trying to figure out where we left off, if you remember. Um, it's been a couple weeks. Um, last week I was in Minnesota, so we didn't have that. So I'm trying to remember, are we at Satan's work in the life of the Messiah? Does anyone remember? Yes, we are. Which one, though? Where did we leave off? You remember? Four? Okay. Satan's use of people. Okay, so we're at Satan's use of people against the work of the Messiah. Okay, let's pick up right there. Okay, so um, what we're going to be studying in this section of Satanology, demonology, is you have to understand the areas in which Satan works. And uh, each area is a little bit different, how he works, but you must understand how he works uh, in these different areas to be effective in dealing with spiritual warfare. And uh, I was talking on an interview today with a gal out of um, uh, uh, Las Vegas. Her name's Shannon Schultz, I believe, or Schultz, Schultzen. And um, she was asking, okay, you know, we're seeing all these things in the world happen, and prophecy is setting itself up, the convergence of events that are happening. And she says, you know, what, what that's a great privilege and and the other aspect of that is, yeah, it's a great privilege, but it comes with great responsibility. When you and I see things that the prophet said would happen, and it, it's starting to get set up like a you know a digital currency, new world order, all that stuff, the collapse of of economies, even including our own, um, we start seeing how God's prophecy is coming true. And how it's going to end up being where where the scripture says exactly where it's going. That being the case, then you you need to know then these areas in which Satan works because um, one of the things I told her, she says, "What do you recommend for people to do?" I said, "They really need to up their game spiritually." All of us, myself included, I'm not excluding myself um, because what what is getting ready to happen is going to require us to step up to a whole new level spiritually on our personal level. Um, And and man, look, if you're already there, you're there. Great. But um, I'm, I'm trying to prepare myself spiritually for what I'm going to see Uh, economically, what I'm going to see with food shortages, what I'm going to see medically, what I'm going to see real estate, all, all these different areas and how I'm going to be able to handle that spiritually. And uh, like what I was saying today, I said, you know, the bottom line is we're going to get down to where um, it's just us and the Lord. And Americans have never really been at that point. And she was, we were talking about provision. Like, you know, you, if you've seen, have you seen, seen uh, Shanghai? Have you seen the, the, uh, the map of it, uh, the satellite image of all the tankers surrounding Shanghai, well, it's going to have a major impact on us. 
The other impact is Japan, its economy is now going in the tank. They're about ready to crash. And they're asking us to bail them out. I'll talk a little bit more on the current events. But that being the case, here's the thing. The number one buyer of U.S. bonds is Japan. The second that buys the most is the Federal Reserve, and they just do it by printing off money. If Japan goes down, that means our entire bond market will go down. Okay? That means your inflation will increase by 20%. So I have to prepare for that economic catastrophe if it's happening. It's already going, getting high, isn't it? You know that. But what if it goes up to another 20%? We're going to have to be a level. We're in America. We're, we're, we've been prepared for, okay, I can take care of myself. I can go to the grocery store, and I can get that, and I can get that. And um, we've, we're used to that. But you're going to enter an era where you're not going to find things on the shelf. They're not going to be abundantly available as, as we are now. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, it's one thing to prepare spiritually, but you can prepare only so far. Let's say you prepare a year's worth of food, okay? And you have it all stocked up. And I'm not saying prepping is not a bad, it, a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing. You need to have things on hand just in case. But let's say you have a year's supply, and then you get into an economic turmoil, and things go haywire, what if someone breaks into your house and steals all your food supply? Shoot them. But what if you're not there? I get that. Okay. But what if you're not there? Let's say you made another run to Costco to buy some more supplies and you're gone. They come through your door and they steal all your food supplies or all your MREs. The point is, yes, you can physically prepare, but the, the, the better is to spiritually prepare. Because at some point, you're gonna, it's going to be you and God and trusting him for your, your provision. That's really where it's coming down to. Now, if you talk to a Christian in the third world, they know, already know this. They know how to do this, right? We're not so used to doing that. And this is where, you know, people are going to say, yeah, just trust the Lord. Yeah, I know that as a, as a, as a principle, but what do you mean in practicality, Brandon? It means you might be at a point where you have to depend on the Lord for your provision that day, that week, that month, however that's going to come. And it, that's, that's a new realm that a lot of American Christians have never been in, not to know where their next meal is coming from. Okay. Now, other brothers and sisters in the Lord are experiencing this on other places in the world, but we have never experienced this. I don't know how bad it gets, and I'm not here to scare you, but I'm just to prepare you. You've got to start, start thinking differently. You've got to start putting yourself in that reality of what, it could, what could happen. Not freak out about it, but you need to spiritually prepare. And here's the thing. God's not going to leave us abandoned. Um, he didn't bring us this far so that we can go begging for bread. He says the righteous won't go begging for bread. And here's the thing that will save you in all of this. The Lord will save you, but you will get better help when you're on mission. Okay? When you're on mission means that you, you're tight with him, you're following his direction, you're doing what he wants you to do. But if you sit back when this war is happening, when this game is happening, 
and you sit back, you're going to be less protected. Now, what do I, let me explain this. I've used this illustration many times. It has to do with Israel. In the future, Israel, Israel's remnant of believing Jews in the remnant, uh, you know, in, in the tribulation, the remnant gets split into two areas. One remnant goes to Petra and hides. Another remnant stays in Jerusalem. And the reason the remnant splits is because one group of believers decides to obey the scriptures and another one doesn't. And what does the scripture say? When you see the abomination of desolation, flee into the wilderness. And that group that obeys Messiah goes to Petra and they are protected for three and a half years. Satan, uh, sorry, Antichrist can't get to them. Um, there's good cases to be made by the scriptures that the manna will be provided for them and water will be provided for them for three and a half years. Because why? They obeyed. The group of believing Jews that's, that don't obey Messiah, there are believers, but they disobey and they stay in Jerusalem. According to Zechariah, they have a living nightmare for the next three and a half years. I mean, uh, their women are raped. There's house-to-house -house fighting with the Antichrist troops. People are slaughtered. Do they survive, but not how the other group is surviving, if that makes sense. The other group is not having their women raped or being ravished and house-to-house and -house fighting. They're protected in Petra, and they've been left alone. Antichrist can't touch them. But in Jerusalem, he does. The point of that is this. In principle, if you want more protection, obedience to the scriptures down to the detail gets you more protection. The less obedient you are, the more unprotected you become. So that's a principle we have to learn. Even though we're saved and everything, you want more protection? Obey more. It's that simple. It's that simple. Obey less. You won't get as protected as you as you normally would be. So keep that principle in mind. Okay, so let's jump into this. Satan's work in the life of Messiah. This is important to understand from the Messianic standpoint. Um, Satan then used people against the work of the Messiah, right? He used Herod. He even used Peter. And he used the multitudes, right? And so he turned the multitudes on him. Uh, Peter doesn't understand what Messiah is trying to do, but he used Peter, and Messiah even pointed out, get behind me, Satan. You remember that whole thing? Because Peter's mindset is wrong. Peter's mind, okay, what is the big issue with Peter? Is, is it, is Peter's misunderstanding about Messiah suffering and dying in Jerusalem, does that come from a personal, I don't want you to die, or where does that come from? Where does that thought come from? We obviously know Satan's inspiring it, but what is the collective thought of that day anyway about the Messiah? Dr. Menzing. That's right. It's an egotistic uh, reasoning versus a spiritual reasoning. And the spiritual reasoning, as you know, is you've got to make the sacrifice. He's got to make the sacrifice. Okay, so Peter is thinking, look, man, what I have been taught about you, I'm going with that thread. And what was the thought? The thread 
is the egoism in it was he's going to free us from Rome and from the immediate oppression that we are feeling right now. But Messiah's plan was to relieve them of the bigger oppression that they had, which was slaves to sin and uh, you're going to hell if I don't do this for you. And, and in the thought pattern, what I want you to see is Satan used that thought pattern for Peter to try to hinder the Lord. You can't do this because we need you not to die. We need you to free us from what's about to happen. Now, it stems from wrong teaching in the synagogues. That's where it stems from. But Satan can use that. So where does all false teaching come from? It comes from Satan, the demonic. Paul points that out. Doctrines of demons, right? So any false religion or any false teaching about religion comes from him, Satan. So when the the Pharisees and the rabbis are teaching that um, they're excluding the first coming and teaching the second coming, and some were even teaching that Israel is a suffering servant. There's not a singular suffering servant. It's Israel. And when they start teaching that, these kids grew up in that environment. It would be like growing up in a, in a, a false religion, right? And then all of a sudden being told that's all wrong, that they, their thought pattern is wrong. And, you know, people try to paint Jesus as a revolutionary or something like that, which, which is ridiculous. He was correct there theologically incorrect but the thought that's been implanted in satan's head sorry peter's head is derived from his false teaching and then satan just uses that to get peter to say that will never happen okay so when you look at people and how they're used they do not realize they're useful idiots okay just to use a historical term they're just useful idiots because until you know the true, the true faith, the true theology of what the God of the universe has given us and revealed to us, you just become a useful idiot. And at that point, Peter is being used as a useful idiot. But let me tell you how it comes to you. If they did this to Messiah, you are no greater than your master. They will do it to you. So the useful idiots will be used against you, okay? Now, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but useful idiots don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant of the fact that they're being a tool. And their main objective then, what Satan will use them, is to come against you and try to hinder what your mission is for the Lord. That's what Peter's trying to stop the Messiah's mission by doing. This is a big deal. This is why the Lord rebukes him so sternly. And that's why when you notice you're getting opposition from useful idiots, and that could be unbelievers or even Christians who don't know theology, you've got to understand that Satan is trying to hinder you. If you just make it about the person, you're not seeing the bigger picture. If the Lord just made it about Peter, well, Peter, you're ignorant. No, no, 
Messiah recognizes that this is way bigger than Peter. Satan is actually speaking through you. So what, what you're going to see, if you're truly on mission for the Lord and you're doing exactly what he needs you to do, you should expect opposition and you should expect opposition from the people closest to you. Because Peter is not some outside dude. He's part of the 12, and beyond the 12, you know, there were 70, and then beyond the 70, there's 120. So you go into concentric circles, he's part of the 12. But Peter's part of even a smaller group of the 12. He's part of the three, right? Peter, James, John are part of the inner circle of the Messiah. And Peter pulls this stunt. This is a lesson for all of us. You want to know where you're going to be betrayed. You want to go know where you're going to be stabbed in the back. You want to know who's going to try to hinder you. It will be people that are close to you that say they have your best interests. And no one wants to think like that. We think, and it's true, you're going to get outside opposition. And you expect that, and you will. But it's not like from within. All these issues I'm trying to show you are people from within. Within. And Peter, he's just a useful idiot. Now, what I mean by that is he has no intention to do any harm to the Messiah, right? Unlike Judas, right? Judas is a Judas. You know, he wears his name well. You know, all the connotations that go with the name Judas. Peter's not in that camp. He's doing it ignorantly, but he is hindering. And so I'm not trying to demonize anybody. I'm just saying you need to watch out for those who are close to you that don't understand the mission that God's put you on. Uh, They're going to think they're going to say something for your best interest. But at the end of the day, they're trying to hinder you. Or Satan is trying to hinder you. Sorry, they're not trying to hinder. Satan is trying to hinder you to accomplish something. And what could that be? Who could that be? It's someone you trust. Because see, how, how would Satan work? Let me tell you this. If you go across the street and you're in this parking lot or whatever, and you're at Costco, whatever, and some dude comes up to you, and let's say you're teaching a Bible study for our third graders, and you're a Bible study teacher for third grade. They come up to you, and, and they're just idiots, and they just say, you know what, you, you shouldn't even be going to church. That, that's all fake news, and uh, Jesus is fake news, and you doing this teaching to third graders is all wrong, and you're just wasting your time because it's a figment of your imagination. Does that necessarily stop you? No, it doesn't, because you know why? Because they have no credibility. They're idiots, but let me talk to you about a useful idiot. A useful idiot is one that knows you, that understands what you're doing. And they will come to you like this. You know, um, I see you, you do a lot of things at the church. And you're not, you're not spending as much time with me as, as you need to. You're catching my drift. You need to kind of back off. We need You need to spend more time with your family because, man, you know, all that you're doing, which is like one thing, 
is really cutting into our family time. Oh. So why don't you do things for Jesus when it's convenient for our schedule? Are you following me? It's someone you trust. It's someone that has your best interest. It's someone that likes you. That's watching out. Hey, I'm just watching out for you, man. I don't want you to get burned out on doing that one thing for Jesus. I'm watching you, man. And you start realizing someone is using somebody close to me to stop me. Yeah. That's how it hits. And too many people, guys, ladies, too many people are held back from serving the Lord because of their own families. Well, I want to go here this weekend. Yeah, but I'm scheduled to teach a Sunday school for Monica. Yeah, but I want to go out of town, you know, because it's real stressful in life, you know, and I need a stress reliever. So we want to go wine tasting at uh, Pastor Robles. So tell, call Monica on Saturday night at midnight and tell her you won't be there tomorrow. Do we not get those calls? No, hopefully they're legit. I'm not involved in that, but hopefully they're legit. But we do have people that, you know, hey, I just can't commit to anything, Brandon, because you know what? Um, we like to go wine tasting, and that's really our time to work things out together as a couple and spend quality time with our family. And so we really can't serve and be at church all the time because we really like going and wine tasting in Napa and Pastor Robles. Oh, well, who isn't stressed? Did Jesus say, hey, don't serve me, man, if you're all stressed out? Don't do that. We wouldn't want to hurt you and your little ego and your little anxiety problems. I don't want to do that. You serve me when it's convenient for you, and you fill up to speed, okay? Did he ever say that? No, but Satan tells you that. You know, you know that commitment to teaching the class, man, that's a big commitment, man. That that. That locks us in. How long are you going to teach this class? Well, it's probably going to be six months to a year. Oh, man, that prevents us from traveling on the weekends. I, we, you can't do that. You see where I'm going? That's how it will hit you. Let's move on. Satan's working the life of the Messiah to have Peter deny Jesus three times. Okay? Now, the denial is one of the most hurtful things you could possibly endure is when someone that is supposed to be on target with you, with you, um, betrays you. And betrays you because of fear. What was he afraid of? Hmm? What's he afraid of? Let's just get that out on the table so we know what we're dealing with. What's he afraid of? They're going to kill him. Thank you. That he's going to get... Dragged into this with the Messiah, 
he knows what their intent is. That they're, they've arrested him. He doesn't want to get arrested. They're going to probably kill him, and he doesn't want to die either. They've already had rumors already floating around that they're planning on killing him. And that started happening after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But he should have saw it coming because even in Nazareth, he was almost thrown off of cliff. You remember that? And he had to slip through the crowds. They were trying to kill him the whole time. So Peter is seeing this, right? So he's not, he's not oblivious to, they're going to kill him. And if I get caught in this, they're going to kill me too. So, but still Peter hangs around. The other disciples scatter. Peter hangs around and it, and it appears that John hung around, okay? And they're in the courtyard. And, uh, and so, hey, you have a Galilean accent. He can't hide it because he has an accent. A Galilean accent is they didn't pronounce Hebrew properly. They had accents with their thing, with their, the way they pronounced Hebrew. So they were considered country bumpkin because they didn't have a refined way of speaking Hebrew. And so if Peter speaks, he's going to give himself away from the, whatever region he's from. So that gets uh, out. And then the other thing is a girl, a little girl identifies him. Remember that? You're one of his. I've seen you basically is the idea. And so now he's, he's got to do it again the third time and it's strictly out of fear okay so what what principle are we working with people will deny you when they're afraid okay we just saw two years of that right they deny it they deny they deny hebrews 10 25 or 10 24 he, they deny that for what? For fear of whatever. And see, behind all this, when somebody gets afraid, if they're not spiritually prepared, they'll compromise. That's how they compromise. And that's my concern as a pastor. Like I said to the, the interviewer today, I said, look, what, what does being spiritually ready help us to do well number one it reduces the stress and the anxiety and the worry but num- and pe- prevents people going into depression flipping out that's that's some pretty good things but it also prevents compromise if i know something's coming ahead and it's not out of left field i don't need to make a decision right on spot i need to make a decision now because i can see it coming and now when it comes i'm prepared to make the right decision what happened to a lot of people during the shutdowns is it came out of left field and they weren't prepared for it. And what did we see? Uh, a depression hit everybody. Anxiety, stress hit everybody. Look, if you think that was bad, what's about to happen to the economy is 20 times worse. You want to see rap, uh, r- uh, just increase in depression and suicides? What happens when people start losing their 401ks and it just drops? You're going to see suicides. Now, it's going to come out of left field, but I see I, my job is to tell you, you need to prepare for that. And when it happens, you say, okay, I knew this was going to happen. I'm going to deal with it. But at the end of the day, the, the Christians primarily, the Christians who are not prepared will inevitably compromise. There'll be a few that don't, but they'll compromise in order to keep whatever lifestyle they want. Look what they did last time. The proof is in the pudding. What did the Christians do to compromise? Shut down the churches. Took the experimental uh, 
jab or whatever you want to call that. Wore the mask. Right? All those things, now we look back and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we did that. Why? But they compromised. Why did they take PPP money? Why? Fear. And fear drives compromise. Why in the world would anyone ever think to compromise with Caesar? Yeah, we'll take your money. What were they thinking? Oh, because they weren't prepared spiritually. And when you're not prepared, you compromise. That's why we all have to ramp up our game. So that we don't compromise on any little thing. That's what we're studying in Daniel. About Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those boys won't even compromise on food. Right? They won't even eat the wrong food. Because a little compromise leads to more. So um, this is part of it. And then the expectation is you will have Christians close to you that compromise and then attack you. Now, here's the thing. Why would they attack you? What do they care about what you're doing? They compromise and then they come back and attack you. Why? Yeah, maybe they're angry at themselves. Yeah, they justify what they did. Of course, they got to feel good about that. So why aren't you doing what I'm doing? And you come out with the evidence and you say, well, because of this, X, Y, and Z, whatever it might be. And, and they still demonize you. They still will call you names. They still will break fellowship with you because you're exposing them. You're exposing that, that you stand for something and they have just compromised. And what, what can they do? Can they say, boy, I made a mistake and be humble about it? No, they're not going to do that. Typically, typically, I've met a few Christians that have and God bless them. God bless them. But most of the time they fight you on it. They actually will double down. And you have to be prepared for that. That's what happens when you see the life of, uh, of the Messiah and Satan's work through his life. Those are examples for us. Okay, now watch when Satan's, Satan works through Judas to uh, betray the Messiah. Satan's responsibility, let's look at Satan's responsibility in Judas's betrayal. Now, Judas is responsible, no doubt about it, right? He is a free will creature. He did this. Um, but first of all, what you have to understand is Satan is the one who suggested it to Judas. Okay? He put the thought in the Judas's head. Now, Judas wasn't on board. He's a son of perdition, right? And he's an unbeliever from day one. Why wouldn't Messiah, uh, uh, know, having full knowledge of who Judas is, pick him? It's part of the plan. Now, Judas, it, just because it's part of the plan doesn't mean God determined it. Judas has free will and can make the decision. But obviously, God knows the future with his foreknowledge, and so he knows this. This is be the God that's going to betray me, as is predicted. As is predicted, okay? So Satan suggests this to Judas. Now, what is the principle there? It's this. Demons, fallen angels, can put thoughts into your head. They cannot read your mind. They do not know what you're thinking. They can probably guess what you're thinking based on your actions and have a pretty good educated guess, but they can't read your mind, okay? But what they can do is put thoughts into your head. You ever have a thought say, where in the world did that come from? Oh, whoa. 
yeah, it's not coming from you. It's coming from the evil ones. And they put thoughts into your head, and you're like, I can't even believe I thought that. That, that is the most ungodly thought I could possibly imagine. Yeah, I know. Dude, when it's beyond you, it's way ungodly. Way off the chart. And you have to take that thought captive, obviously, um, and submit it to the obedience of Christ. But my point is, Satan played along with this by suggesting what to do. Now, I don't, we don't know all the suggesting. We don't know what it could. He could have put a thought in his head like, look, man, um, he's, not, he's not going to do what Israel expects. And he's not going to get rid of the Romans. And so maybe this in this portrayal, we can get him to, to show that to, him, to them and, and come out and vanquish the Romans. I don't know. I don't know. Your, your guess is as good as mine. But whatever it was, the think about this. Judas thought it was a great idea. Whatever his intentions were, he thought it was a great idea. So think about that. Most of the time, they put thoughts in your head that you think are a great idea. But what you'll see is they don't match the authority of the word of God. We talk about conventional wisdom, right? That's where humans get a lot of, of their thinking and how they do things through conventional wisdom. Well, we've done it this way. We'll always do it this way. This is this way works. Yeah, but is that a godly way? Is it submit, does that way submit to scripture? And if it doesn't, then you have to jettison it. Just because it's working doesn't mean it's biblical. Um, and so you don't know what's, what was put in his head, we're guessing, but this is how evil people sleep at night. They think what they're doing, unless they're really, really, really evil, uh, they think a lot of times that they're doing something good. You think Barack Obama's losing sleep and saying he's like snidely whiplash or, you know, um, and real, oh, I just Dr. Evil thing. I can't wait to destroy America. Did we? Yes, that's true. But what, but his intention is what he thinks, and he's misguided that bringing in whatever they have next is a good thing, right? They think it's good, but it's actually evil. They're bringing in the new world order. But see, in their minds, they're thinking they're bringing something good. That's how flipped in their morality they are. They actually think they're doing good. So, yeah, so somewhere in there, Judas thought he's doing something good, whether it's for Israel or whatever, or to get rid of the Romans. I don't know. But anyway, then, then basically he suggests it, and then he enters Judas. So Judas becomes possessed by Satan. Only, there's only about two new guys like this, okay? Judas is actually possessed by the number one guy. And, and at that point, um, that's why he's called the son of perdition, because um, Judas allowed Satan to enter him. And then once he's possessed, the betrayal's for sure. It's going to happen now, because Satan's going to walk that all the way through. So you got to think about this. In Judas's own free will, he allows the, the, the thought to come into the head. Then he allows Satan to enter him. Now, how that transaction goes... Um, is basically he allowed it. See, in the spiritual world, there's laws. 
And, and I don't know a lot of them, but I do know this. They function, even the demons and fallen angels function according to spiritual laws. Spiritual laws that are set for the spiritual realm. And what I know about this law, I do know this. They have to have permission to possess somebody. It's not an automatic. Just like you and I receive Christ, where it, it, it's not forced on us, we are allowed free will to accept Christ, right? The same is true in the spiritual realm with demons and fallen angels. That person must invite them into their life to possess them. So at some point, Judas allows Satan to enter him. So it wasn't forced on him. He allows it. And I don't know why. I don't know what all his reasonings are, but let's just talk about today. Why would anybody allow a spirit to possess them? Ignorant, yeah. Let me ask you this. The Satan is, uh, sorry, is Judas coming from a Judaistic background unfamiliar with Satan? So he's not an ignorant Gentile, right? This dude fool knows, he knows all the theological teachings about Satan because he has the old whole testament. Selfishness, Selfishness maybe? What, 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 what benefit would derive him to be possessed? Disillusion? Power, yes. Money? When um, Judas threw back the 30 silver coins, at that point, he already felt he knew he had already went past the line. So at that point, since Jesus already knew that he was going to be betrayed by him, so my question is, at that, at that time, would he be able to still even though the devil was already in him, be able to be, have that salvation. He could have all the way to the point of death and to where he put a noose around his neck and hung himself. But his repentance when he threw the money back is not repentance unto salvation. It is, it is um, a regret, the way the Greek is formulated. And so it's, it's kind of like, it's not, we talk about people crying crocodile tears because they got caught doing something and they regret doing something, but if they give them a chance again, they would do it again, right? That's not godly sorrow. That's not repentance, right? Um, that is, uh, I'm sorry I got caught. It's with Judas, if you look at what, why he threw the money back, he knew he had betrayed innocent blood, number one. But things didn't go according to whatever his plan was. Whatever Satan told him that let me possess you and I'll, you know, I, I'm just making this up. I'll ensure that he becomes the king of Israel or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, it's all speculation. But I'm, I'm trying to piece the dots together through deduction. And what he saw was they arrested him. And they're going to kill him. So his plan didn't work. And so he realizes that the plan's not working. And he's, he's regretting the, taking the money for the plan. 
and he throws it back. But that's not a throwback for repentance. That's a throwback that it didn't work the way I wanted it to. So forget it. It's over. And now something worse is happening. Okay. And again, we're just piecing this together. He is so distraught about this. Then he goes and kills himself, commits suicide. He knows suicide is wrong. But the misunderstanding that Judas has is he doesn't understand that that even could be forgiven, right? The betrayal could be forgiven. But if Judas is working with a false religion of Judaism, then he, he realizes in that false religion, there's no coming back. There's no pardon for that type of sin. And so in despair, he goes and hangs himself. Now he's, he could have got saved, but he doesn't. And Messiah knows he's never going to get saved. But just because Messiah knows he's never going to be saved doesn't determine his salvation. Judas is the one determining his salvation. And he makes a decision that he's gone too far that he cannot be forgiven, and so he hangs himself. And that, that's working off of Judaism. It would be kind of similar to like um, Catholicism today. Like Catholicism has like venial, uh, venial sins and mortal sins. There's two classes of sin. And in Catholicism, if you do a mortal sin, murder, leave the church, uh, Su- yeah, suicide is part of it. Yeah, suicide is a mortal sin. Then you, you, you're, you can't be saved. You can't be saved. And that's where we get this idea, well, if someone commits suicide, do they go to, to heaven? Of course, if they're a believer, that's sin's forgiven. But in Catholicism, it's no. No, they don't. If they murder somebody, no, they don't. So if you want to think about Judas and Judaism, Judaism was much like Catholicism to where there were certain sins. If you did this, you're done. You're not coming back. He, and so Judas doesn't understand that the blood of the Messiah will be able to cover everyone's sins, including his own. And so he makes a fatal mistake theologically and hangs himself by doing that and seals his doom, basically. But again, where am I going with this? I'm wanting you to piece things together to see how Satan manipulated Judas to where Satan can manipulate you to think you're doing something good and that you have a plan, that if, it wor- if your plan works out, then it's going to work to what you want to see. What do you think Judas wanted to see? What did the other disciples, because I'm just taking my cue from all the other disciples. What did they want to see? Because he has the same mindset as them. He was trained the same way. What do the other disciples want to see? King on earth, the Davidic king, rules and reigns, takes over, crushes the enemies, and now is ruling in Jerusalem. That's what they wanted to see. That's what they didn't understand. That that happens at the second coming, not at the first coming. Judas is in that same mind. He just wanted to grease the skids further. He wants to get this thing in action. And and apparently, apparently, and I'm doing deduction right now, okay? I'm filling in some gaps. Apparently, it seems to be that 
whatever Judas' plan was, was to get him there as fast as he can and that the religious leaders would recognize him. And then, because he knows it is the religious leaders that have to identify the Messiah. And by the way, it's the religious leaders that have to identify the Messiah in the future. So that's why the Sanhedrin's back in business right now. It will be the Sanhedrin that has to call on the nation to, of Israel to repent of the rejection of the Messiah and accept Yeshua as their true Messiah. And according to Hosea, it's the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders that have to do that, which would be the Sanhedrin. Hence, Judas knows that the Sanhedrin has to do this to, to officially recognize the Messiah. So apparently he's trying to get Jesus to them, but it fails miserably. And you can almost see how Satan could tempt Judas. And again, it's the speculation of saying, hey man, just follow me. I have the power to make this happen. I'll help you. I'm a friendly spirit. I'm Casper the friendly ghost. And um, we'll make this all happen. I'm a friendly angel or something like that. You know, because Paul says he comes as an angel of light. Oh, so I'm going to help you. We're going to make this happen. And we just need to get this going. And this is the way to do it. So go ahead and do it. I'm not letting Judas off the hook. Please understand that. I'm just showing you how Satan could have possibly manipulated him to do the worst thing imaginable and think it was good. It was the worst. It was the worst thing someone could have been. Jesus said this. It would have been better if this man had never been born. If I had never created him. How do you like that? That's what kind of grave sin this was. But I want you to, I want, I want you to see how manipulative Satan can be in screwing with people's minds. He is a master manipulator. You do not take him lightly. In fact, you're not even supposed to tangle with him or any of his minions. That's why you don't get in discussions with him. You don't get in discussions with demons. You don't get in discussions with fallen angels because they will wrap you up in a theological pretzel and you will think you're doing good when you're doing the evil thing. That's what he's got all these people in the world convinced of. Right? Okay. Here's the interesting thing. This is in Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, uh, this is the southernmost hill. Um, so if you're standing on that hill facing out, well, if you're standing on the hill and facing this way, you're looking at the Temple Mount and the Jezreel Valley. Uh, no, sorry, um, not Jezreel, sorry. Kidron Valley is right, would be on this side. And the Valley of Hemnon would be on this side, okay? So you would be, from this picture, this angle, you're looking straight at Jerusalem, okay? Um, this is called the Hill of Evil Council. You know why it's called the Evil, the Council of, uh, the Hill of Evil Council? This is where the Sanhedrin, the high priests, made their decision on this hill to arrest Jesus, Okay? This is where the 30 pieces of silver was given over to Judas, okay, at the, the, the Hill of Evil Council. If you go to Jerusalem, you will see the Hill of Evil Council. Okay, here's an interesting thing on the Hill of Evil Council. Guess who occupies the top of that hill? 
you see you see the white building up there and there's a big radio tower the mormon church yeah hezbollah now this is this i can i think this is the most fitting thing i've ever seen the un right on the top of the hill of evil council where judas took the money now doesn't that seem appropriate oh my lanta you can't get any but you can't write that you can't write that up they put themselves right on it and this is where all the evil is coming this is where israel will be betrayed by the antichrist and and so forth and so on the un is, is betraying all of us isn't that crazy wow now let's move to this category and uh, we'll, we'll do a couple minutes and then we'll stop. So now we move from Satan's work against the Messiah now to Satan's work against the Goyim or the Gentile nations. Um, what we see in Isaiah 14 in, in verse 12 is very interesting that Isaiah mentions that Satan is behind the fall of nations. Now, we know sovereign, sovereignly that God raises up and he tears down. But at the same time that God is doing that, one of the reasons God tears down a nation is because they don't follow him. They don't follow his values, his morals, uh, and what they do, right? And so he, God brings them down. Well, let's do some math. How does a country get like that where they're not following God anymore? It's because of the work of Satan in that country. And hence, you can see how it beautifully aligns with God's sovereignty, that he raises up nations and he brings them, and he brings them down. And the main reason he brings them down is because they don't follow his statutes. It doesn't matter if they're not they're believers or not. It's whether or not the country follows his statute. Now, he decides on how much they follow and when to judge. And he decides, you know, what, what whatever percentage it is, I don't know. That's up to God. But at a certain point, when a country keeps filling up the, the, the uh, barrel or, or, or vat of judgment, and it finally reaches the top, then he brings the nation down. Just like he told about the Canaanites, I'm waiting for their their uh, judgment to fill to the brim, basically, that their, their, all their sins were accumulating and accumulating. And then finally, when it hits the brim, then that's when God would strike in judgment. And he gave the Canaanites, what, 450 years to get their act straightened out. So after 450 years, Joshua goes in and slaughters them or drives them out because they had 450 years to make it right. But they didn't. Now, this is a big deal. This, I believe, is happening right now to America. Satan, according to Isaiah 14, 12, has been working in America to bring us down for a long time. And I believe he is behind, obviously, every junk that's going on. He's behind the schools. He's behind the media. He's behind our politicians, and he's behind the economic crash. He's behind every bit of it. But a nation only gets blessed if they follow the statutes of God. If a nation refuses that, they become cursed. Okay? So think about this. There were two hills in Shechem. I believe it's in Shechem. And Shechem is divided by two hills. 
And this is where they, they crossed over with Joshua and they put a big pillar and it's still there today, by the way, uh, in Shechem. Um, anyway, on one hill, he separated Israel into two groups. And one hill put Israelites on uh, this one hill, and then he separated the rest of Israelites on another hill. One hill was the hill of blessing, and one hill was the hill of cursing. Okay, And what they were supposed to do is that this group would go down the list of, if you obey, these are the blessings you will get. And they repeated that. And then on this hill, if you disobey me, here are all the cursings you get. And that group recited that. So you just had a, a tandem going back and forth on two hills in the middle of uh, in Shechem. So what was the point about that? There's a spiritual point. Why would he divide Israel into two groups on two hills? This is the hill of cursing. This is the hill of blessing. Why would he do that? Why not just get them all together and let's recite cursings and blessings? Because he wants to make a distinction visibly for Israel. When you're in the place of blessing, the hill of blessing, that means you're being obedient. You're in a place of blessability. When you're in the hill, on the hill of disobedience, you're in a place of cursing. So he's trying to show them a visual reminder. You need to be in the place of blessing and not cursing, Israel. Even as an individual, you need to be in the place of blessing, not cursing. Now, here's what's getting ready to happen, or is happening. America and the people who go along with these values in our country, these woke values, these Babylonian values, are now on the hill of cursing. Okay? But you can be separate from that physically, as the, the hill reminded them, and be on the hill of blessing and be in that position to where even as America is getting cursed, you can be in the place of blessing even though everyone around you is being cursed. Does that make sense? That's why he visually separated them out in Shechem to give them a visual reminder. Be in the place of blessing and I'll take care of you. You go over there with a hill of cursing, you'll be with them and I will curse you. This is how you know you will survive. God is not going to curse you for what America has done. You think God's going to hold you accountable for the infanticide that's happening in California? No, he knows that. He knows how to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. So the good news is this. You're separated. So I know the economy is going to go in the tank. I know we're going to a digital currency. I know how bad it's going to get. But I'm making sure I stand in the place of blessability. And then you can make it. That's what his point was at Shechem. And so even if a nation falls and Satan is taking, look, look at Daniel. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and they're in Babylon. And what happened to Babylon? Babylon was taken down because of Belshazzar's you know, uh, just absolute blasphemy, right? We studied that. But who survived? Daniel just slips right over into the next kingdom. Did you notice that? And he's still the highest in the kingdom. He just goes from one kingdom to the next. Babylon's over. Now we're in Medo-Persia. And, 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 and uh, Daniel's just standing there. He shifted from one kingdom to the next. Was Daniel taken in the takedown? No. He just shifted right over. That's you. That's what I want you to know. 
that no matter what happens in America, you just do the shift. Right? If you want to call it that, I don't know. The shift. So, yeah, you're going to a new world order. Fine, then make the shift. Here we go. And, and you'll be in the same place of blessability like Daniel was, and they won't be able to stop you. They just won't. They couldn't stop Daniel. They're not going to stop you. That's an important spiritual lesson. Very, very important. This is what gives us hope that, okay, throw down the new world order. All right. Let's end the, they're going to end the dollar. But I'm not wringing my hands because I saw what God did with Daniel. He did the shift. All right, let's just go move right over here. You're fine. Just, Daniel, keep doing what you're doing. Okay. Oh. See, that's how God thwarts the plans of Satan. God works in that, in this environment, even though how bad America is. I get it. But this is why these countries are falling. This is why America's falling. Why? America had its chance. I love America, but it's not the same country anymore. You know that and I know it. It's not. We got people, look, we put the, the military up there on the side there. You know, we have people that don't want to fight for us anymore. They would, they would, they just, I don't know what they are. Woke, whatever, you know, they don't have the courage to face evil anymore. They would rather negotiate with evil rather than fight it. And that's a different America than we're used to. We have an America now that's a victim. Everyone's a victim. Everyone needs a safe space. Everyone's offended. I'm sorry, that kind of person doesn't fit into the model of freedom. They don't. You can't have a country that's based on freedom with people who want safe spaces. People who refuse to fight for what they have. Refuse to, to uh, give rights to other people. Look what's going on with Elon Musk. I'll give you an example. Look at the backlash he's getting from the left. I, I, you know, I'm going to talk about this in, in, after the break, but that dude's in danger. I'm serious, man. That dude's in danger. He has taken away one of the left's biggest weapons. He's taken away China's weapon and every other rogue country that gets to use Twitter. He's taken their weapon away. You don't think that's not going to come with backlash? They're going to kill him. They're going to try to kill him because they won't stop him. They don't have the money to stop him, so they're just going to have to take him out. Anyway, that's how nations rise and they fall, and we're watching us plummet now. So with that being said, I'm going to stop there. We'll continue on this next week. Any questions before we stop and take a break? Clear as mud, right? No. Uh, yes, go ahead. Okay, so the question is, you, you thought Judas was saved, but now you're realizing he never was. Right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so when Jesus, when Jesus calls him the son of perdition, that is, obviously Jesus can make that statement because Jesus knows their heart, right? We couldn't make that kind of statement. Only Messiah could make that statement. And he says flat out, the guy's an unbeliever. When he says he's the son of perdition, it would have been better if he had never been born. That's a clear, that's God saying that guy's not saved. He never was. And so, um, again, you, you have to go into the dynamics of why did Jesus allow that? 
I will, obviously, to fulfill prophecy. Remember, that's why he even said to John, uh, why do I, he goes, John goes, why do I need to baptize you, man? You don't need to be baptized. And he goes, no, for, to fulfill all righteousness in this sake, we need to do this. And why? Because he's not only showing us an example, but he's fulfilling um, everything that needs to be fulfilled according to the law. And, and so he did it. So, Ju so Judas is part of that fulfillment. Now, it could have been anyone. Judas could have not been one of them. It could be someone else. But somebody would have been the one to betray him because it's predicted, right? So it doesn't make Judas, he, he, oh, he has no control over his life. It, no, no, no. God knows who's going to do it, and he allows it. And that's, that's for the purposes of what he was trying to do. I have a question about our prayer life, and given that demons and fallen angels and such are constantly around us, listening to us, yeah, uh, should we be guarded about what we say out loud in our prayer life or anything of that sort? Good question. That's a very good question because that's that's a lot that because they can hear us speaking like right now, right? They know what we're saying. Um, if you speak out loud in prayer, did they, can they hear your prayer? I don't have any scripture that I point to that your prayers are protected. I, I, I don't. I can't point. No, nor can I say that they. Uh, can I point to a scripture that says they can't hear? Um, I'm glad they hear my prayers. Yeah. <laughs> So here's where I'm in deduction at this point, okay? So don't, this is not Scripture because Scripture doesn't talk about it. Since prayer is so intimate with God, I'm assuming, okay? Notice where I'm going with this because I don't have Scripture to back this up, and neither does anyone else. But I'm assuming, I'm assuming God would protect our prayers, Okay? Because when you're praying, you're praying about intimate details about your life. And um, that's like a private conversation between you and God. I, I have a hunch based on the character of God that he would not allow a demon to hear that kind of intimate prayer. Maybe like a general prayer, you know, like we're praying out loud, that, that wouldn't be hidden from a demon. Obviously, we're doing a general prayer, you know. But, you know, you're sharing things with God on an intimate level that you would share to nobody. I think, I think and I assume that's protected, okay? I can't point to a scripture for that, but it's my deduction. And where am I getting my deduction? Based on the character of God. I just don't think he would let that intimate conversation happen and let all ears hear. Um, but I do know this, if they can't hear that, they still can hear you talking behind closed doors. Okay. They watch you and they do listen to you. And it's very important that you watch what you say. Okay. So even if you're, so let's, let's, let's say prayer is protected. Okay. I have a, a good hunch it is. Okay. But your speech is not. If you say something that gives them the clue into your personal inner workings, they're going to use that against you. Do not think, they can't read your mind. They cannot read your mind. You're safe there. But if you start talking out loud and you start saying this and you start saying that and you start saying this, um, 
they're going to get a funny hunch of where you're coming from, and they're going to go, boom, they're going to target it. And it's so well, but this is my thing. As long as you're working on those things, you're protected. Okay? It's when you're not. And when you're not is when you get in danger. If you have an issue and you're, you're clean with God and God, I'm struggling with this and yada, yada. Fine. They, believe it or not, will leave you alone because as long as you're making progress and doing the right thing, I have not seen someone get attacked for making progress. I see them get attacked for doing nothing about their issue. Okay? So um, if as long as you're moving in the right direction and you're, you might take two steps back and one step forward and it's a struggle, but man, it's the direction that counts. Okay? It's the direction that counts. And, and if you stay on that path of direction, then they tend to leave you alone. It's kind of, and I don't know how the laws of the spiritual realm work. But I'm assuming it appears to be that they have to back off if the person is working on themselves. Okay? It appears to me. Um, can there be bumps in the road? Yes. But I see more people thrashed by the demonic because they're not doing something. And that's when they really get nailed. Okay, where am I at? Oh, here? Okay. Jeff, go ahead, man. Uh, in regards to prayer, um, you can speak in English, but go to his word and pray his word to him because he looks after his word to, and accomplishes it. So you can't go wrong if you're praying his word. That's right. The demons can't do nothing about it. That's right. The other thing is, is don't entertain thoughts that come to your head. Um Matthew 6, 31 says, take no thought saying. So when Satan puts a thought in your head, you don't have to entertain it and you don't have to speak it. That's right. Then if you go to James, he says that your tongue is like a rudder on a ship and we run aground because we're not steering the ship. That's right. Our tongues so are. <laughs> we need to pray and ask God to tame our tongue. That's right. My question was, uh, Psalms 110 uh, says that, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. So if Christ is finished, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father until the Father makes the enemy the footstool, mm -hmm. then it's going to be through the body of Christ that the enemy be put under. So is that going to happen in the latter reign? Oh, good question. Okay, I get you. The enemies under the footstool go all that time period is now all the way through the tribulation because the, the the antichrist needs to be put underfoot and then the rebellion in the millennial reign has to be put down as well so what we understand about making your enemies a footstool it happens at the last revolt in the millennial kingdom where he puts them down by fire and that's when the kingdoms finally are all put down under his foot at that point, according to 1 Corinthians, what, 15, I think? I think it's 15. He hands the authority to, of the kingdom back to the Father once the enemies are made afoot. So, but you you got several things that have to be accomplished in the future. It's currently happening now. and But you, then you got the tribulation where Satan's uh, Antichrist's kingdom and then obviously the revolt of um, 
of uh, the Messianic Messianic uh, Revolt. So good question, Jeff. Excellent question. Yes. Okay. Where am I at, Gabriel? Or I'm back here. Okay, go back here. Um, I know you can't conform to the world, but how do you uh, adjust to it or um, live in it? How, how do I live Not in it? Wow, that's like a book, man. Um, Sorry. Well, to be in the world... Here's, a, here's just the, the just short of it. It's not necessarily how you look, okay? Now, the top Bible tells us with modesty, but to be in the world but not of the world has to do with morality. It has to do with belief, and it has to do with values. And that's the big ticket item. If you have the same values, the same beliefs, and the same theology as the world, you're of the world. You would be considered called worldly Christian. So the short answer is this. Theologically, morally, and then it goes to your behavior. If those things are different than the world, then you're doing great. If they're the same, you're like the world. And But th that's in a nutshell, and that's, you know, obviously we could write a book on that, but in principle, that's what it means to be in the world but not of it. It has to do with those kinds of big-ticket items like that. We got a... Where am I at? Where am I at? Gabriel, go ahead. So the online members wanted a clarification on how we face persecution. Well, if, if, if that's a broad uh, question, but I'll try to answer it. How we face persecution? Well, you, number one, it starts with you being prepared for it. That's how you, that's how you face it. You realize it's coming. And realize if, if it's coming, what it entails for what you will lose. You have to take inventory about what you will lose. So then when you do lose it, you're okay with that. If they take your money, you got to be okay with that. If they harass you, you got to be okay with that. If, if whatever they're going to do to you, you have to accept it. And so accepting persecution has to do with your mental ability to do that. And how do you accept it? Well, you accept it, but you, you do it at the same time in what God promises you that he will provide for you during persecution. That's what you have to offset. Accept the reality of persecution, but, but balance that out with what God provides. That's a short answer, but for the time being, that's what we have to do. Where am I? I had other questions. Where are we at? We're good? We're good? We're, we're, oh, right over here, right over here. So um, back to the, the question about Judas, um, I have a, well, actually I have a question and then a scripture for that. Okay. Um, so John chapter 63, verse 64, and um, he says, um, the, the word says, but there are some of you that believe not for Jesus knew from the beginning who were, there you go, that would believe not and who should betray him. And then good. Verse Good passage, 60, yeah. 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirits. So he didn't receive the things of the spirit. That's right. Because he was trying to seek to save his life rather than to lose it. Yes. And then um, the question, would somebody have to cast out the devil himself out of Judas for him to be saved? Because you can't have the, the devil and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> So um, if, if uh, typically, it depends on what your views are, um, but if you get saved, then the possession would stop if the person gets saved. And I've seen that. 
Um, there are people that disagree with that, but my, my, my thing is, uh, well, let me, let me put the theological thing out. I believe that a believer can have the th- one, two, and three levels of demonization. That's the word in Greek is demonization. There's no word such as possession. Okay, but it, we call it demonization. But what we realize from Scripture, there are four facets to demonization. First facet, influence. Second facet, suppression. Third facet, oppression. And third, uh, sorry, fourth facet, facet is possession. Okay, or the person. I don't hold that a believer can be possessed, but there are other Christian leaders and teachers that do. Uh, I believe that a, a, a Christian can have uh, influence, or suppression, oppression. But I can tell you this, on the level of oppression, the third level, there's not a lot of differences with what's going on around the believer versus possession. Now, the only difference is the person is possessed where the other person oppressed from the outside. So I believe that if someone got saved, that, that, that would have to leave them. Okay, because the Holy Spirit would now indwell, and there's no room for anyone else, obviously. That's my belief. I will say this. There are other theologians that don't believe that. Um, there are other theologians that uh, they believe a believer can be possessed. Uh, Merrill Unger is one of them from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's one of the books I recommend to you. And in that book, what they say, now again, this is not me saying it. This is their view, but at least you, you, you need to know both arguments. They say, yes, the Holy Spirit indwells you, but the Holy Spirit indwells your new nature, not your old nature, which is true. The Holy Spirit does not indwell your sin nature. He would have nothing to do with your sin nature. He, it, it is true that he indwells the new nature. Therefore, now this is where they, they go off on this, and I disagree with this at this in this juncture. Therefore, they say, then the Christian can be possessed in the sin nature while the Holy Spirit is possessing the new nature. Okay? Now, that's their opinion, and they can make that opinion. I disagree with it, but that's why, like in some of Merrill Unger's books, he will record Christians being possessed. I would interpret that as Christians being oppressed. Okay? Not possessed. Because I, I believe that if we're a temple, you can't have another God in that temple. Uh, if I'm using the temple structure to think about, um, and if that temple is holy, and, and it, then he indwells us, and it doesn't have room for any other thing to possess us, any other creature to possess us like that. But there are some that believe it, and I just want to give you the debate uh, of where that goes. And um, we're, we're not talking about crazies. We're talking about like, Really good theologians believe that. Like Merrill Unger, he's very highly reputable. He's one of the experts on demonology. Um, But I just simply disagree with it. But if someone's possessed, the biggest thing they have to do, it was obviously get saved, and they have to renounce it. They have to renounce the demon. They have to renounce what they did to let that per, that those demons in. They have to do that. And so a lot of it falls on the person. Now, they can have help from the outside, but it's not like the exorcist type thing. You know what I mean? Like It is 
The person has to want to be free. The person has to want to accept Jesus. And it's their desire. That's where the legality comes from. Not because someone's throwing holy water on them. That's ridiculous. That's not going to change anything. The person wants to be free. And I've seen it right in my face. So I know what it looks like. And the person I was dealing with didn't want to be free. I I said, I'm sorry. There's nothing else I can do for you. If you don't want to be free of Mr. S, there's nothing else I can do for you. And, and that's, she like, and I always go back. What's, what's in, like I told you, what's in it for Judas? What's the appeal? You know what the appeal is? It's power. It's power to make things happen in the physical world. That's why magic and sorcery appeals to people because it's influencing power in the physical realm. And do they have power? Yes, they do. Limited, but they do have power more than human beings. And so that's why people gravitate to that. That's probably where, why Judas made a deal with the devil to let him be possessed because there was some power involved in this. Maybe, maybe again, I'm conjecturing. Maybe he told Judas, you'll be at the right hand of the Messiah. Boy, if you do this one, he'll, he'll really praise you for this one because you helped him get on that throne. And boy, howdy, you're, you're going to sit at his right hand. Who knows? I mean, it's something like that, right? I'm going to give you something for doing this. That's what he does to people. He gives them power. But here's the deal. Let me ask you this, and we got, we got to stop. When he makes the deal for power, they do get that power. But here's what every occult, uh, people who study the demonology have realized. When a person makes a pact with a devil, we, we call it, with a demon or whatever, the exchange will not be what the person thought. Because they lie. They lie in the bargain. Well, yeah, we'll give you this if you give us this. If you let us possess you, then we'll give you this. And it, what ends up happening is they'll get a little bit of what they were promised, but not everything. And the price they pay for this is more than what they even thought. So it's always a one-way deal when they do that. So all these Hollywood people that are making deals with demons and stuff to be popular and stuff, oh, they got the popularity, but you have no idea what price they're paying behind the scenes. They are absolutely tormented. And they eventually commit suicide because they can't take it anymore. They actually go crazy. Anyway, we got to take a break. We'll come back in five minutes.